This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Welcome, 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 one and all, to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, Triple R's weekly inquiry into the potential shape of the future. Bushy's my name, and uh, regular co-conspirator Adam Grubb is back in the house this week. He's carrying himself with the graceful air of one who has co-authored a best-selling book. How are you, Adam? I, that might be a slight exaggeration. Come on, it's falling off the shelves. It, well, we do, it's doing all right. Exactly. The art of frugal hedonism, just slipping it out there. No, Annie was uh, on Breakfasters last oh, week. Oh, she was great, wasn't she? Awesome. Yeah. yeah, it's really, really good. Good to hear. I've been looking forward to that book ever since you told me about it, maybe 18 months ago or something. It was in the works. <laughs> yes. Excellent, and it's getting a good response. It's been a while coming. We were hedonistic in our approach to writing it, and it took a little time. <laughs> <laughs> we could write a book, or we could have gin in the shade. Uh, joining us on rotation... Um, Often I introduce uh, this wonderful co-host of ours as a muckraker, and she has uh, she's really taken it to the next level. <laughs> yeah. Sarah Coles, who's also working on a book. Yeah. Okay. I wonder, Jed, I'll get to Jed later. Maybe he's working on a book. Uh, Colsey, let's have a little conversation about raking muck. Um. So my article came out about the Marsh versus Baxter case, and um, it was in Kill Your Darlings Journal. And I got picked up by ABC Radio, who wanted to interview me, which I thought would be a good thing. Uh-oh. Because <laughs> uh, it's your ABC, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's my ABC. And then it was ABC Southwest. Which Drive is time, whereabouts, Which WA. is the heartland of Liberal Party voting pastoralists and graziers association GM lobbyists. Yeah. And for those that don't know, of course, your article, the, the Marsh-Baxter case was the... GMO farmer and his organic yeah. um, neighbour. But in my defence, it was quite a balanced piece. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was. Like, the whole premise of it was that um, it wasn't about organic versus GMO. It was about collusion between the state government of Western Australia and a corporation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is what I said on the radio. For a balanced piece, it felt, really felt like you put the boot in to me. <laughs> Beating like a, f- a few things that felt like balance. Okay, even evenly. Keeping heads across, yeah. yeah. And then they, after I was on, they um, read out text messages that they received, and they were all negative. Oh. Mm. But they, and they all, went forever. They were all very similar in their tone. <laughs> yeah, they and all had this Sarah. Mm, they this all started. Sarah. So my sister's like, "It's a conspiracy, Monsanto behind it. It's too coordinated an attack." <laughs> But I think, I don't know. If people, I, I think we've posted the article. If people want to have a look at it, they can. But you were able to draw some very direct links between the different ag colleges in Western Australia and the state government and big ag companies like Monsanto. When you pressed click start on your stopwatch and then started Googling, 
you didn't like how far oh. did the stopwatch go until you found those links? That was that was a minute. Yeah. Yeah. S- yeah, sixty seconds. It was maybe it was good luck. The first thing that I looked at, the first report that came out of Muresk Agricultural College, it had published with the help of Monsanto. Yeah. They provided the data. Yeah. And they thanked them in the introduction. Wow. So that, but I think that's quite common. So that's pretty balanced then, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Awesome. The Bicycle Whisperer, smooth operator of the panel, Jed McCartney, is running the show tonight and possibly working on a book over there of his own. No, yeah, he is. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> the Panel Operator's Guide to Zen. Now, following on from last week's show where Kate Dundas assembled a brilliant set of minds to discuss the city design spaces um, and how we could live in it better, as well as some draconian planning and development laws, we are going to speak tonight with a fellow who has spent some time in a country that has already had a practice run at retrofitting itself, that being Cuba. And I'm going to throw to Adam to introduce our guest this evening. Sure. Uh, so we have tonight with us Adrian Hearn, Adrian Hearn, who is an Associate Professor of Anthropology at Melbourne University, uh, with experience throughout the US, uh, Latin America and China, and very broad-reaching interests by the look of his CV um, in the intersection of culture and the economy. And recently he's received funding from the Australian government for a project which is looking at urban agricultural practices and the differences between them there in Melbourne and Havana and other cities in Latin America and China. And he was also he's also spent time in Cuba during that very stressful period uh, post the collapse of the Soviet Union. And when all sorts of things, including oil and uh, chemical herbicides and and fertilisers, suddenly disappeared and the nation had to scrabble to feed itself, really for survival, and urban agriculture was a big part of that. And that's the theme we would like to focus on tonight. So with that very long intro, (laughs) welcome to Greening the Apocalypse, Adrian Hearn. Well, thanks for having me, guys and lady, and uh, thanks, Adam, for the introduction. You're right, an anthropologist can do just about anything. That's why I'm one of them. (laughs) So, you know, it's meant I can basically travel around and and research whatever I, uh, I really want to look into. Yeah, because basically being... you study humans and <laughs> if anything, that's a, that's a pretty broad field. Wherever there are humans, I can go and you can study. Go. Well, well, which just rules out space. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I have to revise my yeah, thinking. <laughs> the first space anthropologist. <laughs> um, well, since we're going to focus on Cuba, I don't know, you know, my head is just full of like cartoonish, um, associations of bearded revolutionaries and cigars and uh, sugarcane fields and I, I don't know exploding clams. Yeah, <laughs> efforts by the CIA to kill Fidel Castro <laughs> being the reference. Fifty-two there. times. My God. Um, well, would you would you give us a before we get onto your research and before even talking about the special period in Cuba? What 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 makes Cuba interesting to you and what makes it different to say here and you know, and or even another Latin American country. Mm, yeah. Uh, well, where to begin? I mean, yeah. uh, very very broad. Yeah. Question. Look, I, I think one of the most, for me, fascinating things about Cuba is the uh, the mix of people that's there. You know, you can go back again centuries, but if you go back to around seventeen hundred, and this isn't going to turn into an anthropology lecture, by the way. Don't worry. <laughs> but we'll begin in seventeen hundred because that's where you start to see the large-scale arrival of people from West Africa, right? Enslaved people brought um, to work agriculture. Mm -hmm. 
so between 1750 and 1850, that was really the peak. About 600,000 people brought, of a total 12 million people brought from uh, West Africa to the Americas, including the US. So in Cuba, that's resulted in, you know, uh, well, survival techniques on the one hand. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was a difficult, well, brutal system mm. of labor. But somehow, as in the United States, uh, kind of paradoxically, some really beautiful things emerged from that tragedy, Mm. right? Uh, And I mean music, I mean uh, arts, culture, ways of thinking, and ways of bringing different cultures together. And the legacy of that is what you now have in Cuba. Uh, And so for that reason, much like Brazil, where I'm also working, Mm. you have really strong traditions of natural medicine, for example, Mm. uh, and of horticulture that go back centuries. Mm. Uh, and uh, many of those techniques, you can trace them back to West Africa. So, uh, you know, as an anthropologist, but just as a human being, you know, I find this really fascinating, the way that survival techniques now are actually becoming useful again. They've always been useful, but now they're almost going mainstream. Yeah. You know, environmental politics in the 21st century has kind of carved out a space, an opportunity for the revival of these traditions in a mainstream way. And I find that really kind of um, inspiring. Mm. So it, although it is, um, so you mentioned, you know, that these survival strategies, and by that I think you might, you, you mean like self-sufficient type um, medicine. Um, it's also famous for DIY hacks in Cuba. People with, that, with all the sanctions from the US and minimal trade after the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, there's a massive um, scene of like just fix it yourself type stuff, isn't there? Well, absolutely. I mean, the the collapse of the Soviet Union <clears throat> at the end of the eight, the end of the eighties um, was a real problem for Cuba because Cuba relied on the Soviet Union for trade um, and and exchange and various forms of barter exchange, sugar for oil, for instance. Mm. Um, and so, when the Soviet Union collapsed, that meant for Cuba about a thirty five percent. Um, collapse of its GDP, mm-hmm. about a 75% reduction in its import capacity. And for that reason, as you say, Adam, people had to figure out their own ways of, of being self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. And really, that's where the urban agriculture story, you know, really kicks off in Cuba in the, the, the mid-1990s, mm-hmm. when self-sufficiency in, in growing your own food and, um, and being able to survive, again, a survival technique, became something that since then has now become, you know, actually um, an example for other places. Hmm. I'm just a bit curious that with, uh, with the 75% cut to imports and stuff, did that, because uh, you can think of potentially that would have also opened up a, a sort of a black market economy, <laughs> much like the prohibition era with booze in, in the United States. Um, did that take part much in Cuba, like a the black market of sneaking stuff in across the border and those sorts of things at the time? Uh, yeah, absolutely. But, it, you know, the black market in Cuba, which is still very much an issue, mm. is is one of domestic production being uh, stolen from factories, essentially, talking mm. about everything from plumbing goods, right, through to car parts and um, even electronics and refrigerators, 
you know things that are um, that are daily needs. Yeah, uh, many of them produced in Cuba. At least uh, you know the, the yeah. um, some clothing items and uh, and plumbing goods, for example. Those are circulated in the black market, mm. and it's a difficult situation for the government to deal with because if you clamp down too strongly on that, yeah, it affects you, people down the stream. That's right, and you yeah. need to uh, you know you don't want to incite instability. Mm. Um, and so at the same time, you've got to bring about some sort of legalization yeah. and, and ideally taxation yeah. so that you can survive and pay for social services, but at the same time not clamp down too hard. So it's that balancing act that, mm. that the Cuban government I just ask really because faces. When you mentioned sort of survival instincts, I mean, survival instincts can go in many different directions. I just thought that would be an interesting case study on its own. The, yeah. yeah, it is. And there are people that have studied the, you know, the black market. Um, and one of the things I find interesting over the past, because I've gone to Cuba every year for the past 16 years or so, mm. and I've seen the change kind of gradually happening. Mm. And what I've seen is the kind of eruption of the black market, mm. especially around 2008, 2009, mm. 2010. And then when people were legally allowed to set up their own businesses, uh, they relied on that black market to to then uh, to get their wholesale. Yeah, right. Right. So on the surface, you see positive change. Yeah. Uh, people say, "Well, I've got money in my pocket now. I can go and buy the necessities that I need." But on the other hand, up below the surface, you've got this black market. Mm. And one one of the things relating to urban agriculture is that most recently, some of my friends that do this for a living do mm. the, the set up their own stalls uh, to retail. <clears throat> anything from clothes to music to plumbing equipment mm. have turned to retailing urban agriculture because the government is really promoting it mm. and because it's uh, less likely to get you busted for relying <laughs> on the black market. Now, this wasn't always the case. Um, before the Soviet Union fell, Cuba's agricultural sector, I believe, was more industrialised than the US. So there was more nitrogen fertiliser being thrown at it per acre they had uh, massive tractors and when the soviet union collapsed their their subsidized oil and their fertilizer suddenly disappeared when did you first get to cuba and what what did you see yeah i, I arrived in uh, i think t the year 2000 i think it was yep. um and this is why i moved to australia actually because i i'd been growing up in the u.s and went to university there and um, and from the US, it was impossible to go and do PhD studies in Cuba. And being a musician, I'm a drummer, and I wanted to go to Cuba. I was set on it. Uh, and um, it happened that I came to visit Melbourne mm -hmm. uh, for family reasons. My parents had moved to, to Canberra. And I went to a Latin American studies conference and found that there was an opportunity to do postgraduate studies here and be funded uh, to go and spend time doing the research in Cuba. So I arrived there pretty excited about this opportunity. Um, and absolutely, I found a, a system that was really in recovery mode mm. from the previous 10 years, trying to get back on its feet. And as happens with any economic crisis, you know, in Western countries, we sometimes think of Keynesian economics. When there's a crisis, the government, if it chooses that path, might put people to work doing things like building roads, right? Classic Keynesian economics. In Cuba, they did this, but they also saw agriculture, urban agriculture, mm -hmm. as one of the ways to employ people. And presumably so, as a matter of necessity, if, because the, the, the very structure of your agriculture depended on lots of energy and um, inputs, and that was gone. That's right, that was gone. Mm -hmm. So a hole and also an opportunity. So mm -hmm. 350,000 people were employed over the subsequent 
14 years yeah. from 2000. And, um, I mean, that's a massive number of people mm. being employed by the government to work on local food production. Yeah. And did I, I heard somewhere um, – well, there, there is a film probably from about nearly 10 years ago um, called The Power of Community, How Cuba Survived Peak Oil. And it documents uh, – it, it includes documenting some Australian, including Melbourne permaculturist Pam Morgan, who I believe you're familiar with, who set up the Collingwood Children's Farm – and uh, some of her colleagues going, being, you know, in some small way part of this transition that Cuba made to urban agriculture, which allowed them to avoid starvation. While at the same time, North Korea was uh, facing similar challenges, didn't handle it quite so well. Now, you mentioned that they, the government employed lots of people to work on urban agriculture. I, th I think I heard from that movie that they structured the pay in such a way that you would be paid more as a farmer than you would be as an engineer, for instance. Well, it was just at that point when Pam Morgan arrived and, and had been working in Cuba just before I arrived. And I was so impressed with the work she was doing. Her and Adam Tiller was running the project. This had AusAid funding at the time, was mm. run through the Australian Conservation Foundation mm. to go and do permaculture training. And the work they were doing was really quite incredible. Mm. You know, they were able to um, bring certain techniques that developed originally, as you know, by Bill Mollison and, and, and company in Tasmania. Mm. So an Australian concept, a way of arranging a space. Mm. Uh, and they went and, you know, worked with the Cubans to, to find local adaptations to, to that system. So they, uh, and subsequently Ceres, not far from here, mm. have followed up with that and, and built on that legacy. Mm. And the work they did there really was uh, impressive. They What they found and what I found also, you know, was that there was a system in place that was financially supporting people so that they could get involved in doing this type mm. of work. Now, these, these things, though, are always complicated. We're talking about a foreign NGO coming in yeah. and trying to work in a situation which has, is, is an embattled situation mm. where, uh, you know, the concept of civil society, for example, is a bit different than it is in, in many other countries. And so... You know, to, to turn the AusAid funding into something that can work in Cuba and be politically acceptable there, I think that's one of the resounding achievements that Pam and Adam, you know, were able to, to, to make there. I, you know, I, I wrote about it at the time and I was really pretty impressed with them mm. because the idea of getting people to do things independently to become more self-sufficient had been tried before by U.S. agencies with a kind of uh, different agenda, let's say, mm. right? An agenda that might lead people to be more independent from the government and might incite over time, you know, a different political vision. Mm -hmm. So the Cubans naturally, I would be too, were pretty suspicious of any foreign NGO coming in. And I think the way Pam and Adam kind of negotiated that terrain was really impressive. Mm. I heard some argument too that the uh, series over the road here from Triple R is built on top of an old rubbish tip and uh so that had to that that has been capped and any uh all the soil that they're now growing organic vegetables in is built on top of everything that was there and i heard some argument that that experience there may have helped uh develop some of the are they called organoponicos the the type of um raised bed systems that often um arise on top of old car parks and the like in, in yeah, yeah. The, the problem is always space isn't it as it is in melbourne as it is in in cities around the world you know finding a space where you can actually 
grow things in the middle of a big city. So often you'll find it's vacant lots. Uh, below power lines is very often the where people will choose to put gardens. That's the case like in Rio series. and Sao Paulo, like series, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Because it's not uh, legal or practical to build anything mm. below power lines. So below power lines is often around the world where you see yeah. uh, large-scale urban agriculture taking mm. off. And you are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3 R. We're talking with uh, Associate Professor and Anthropologist Adrian Hearn about all things Cuba and in particular how Cuba as a country and as a people dealt with the incredible challenge of having the whole foundation of their agricultural system pulled out from under their feet when the Soviet Union collapsed in the early 90s. And Adrian visited there around 2000 for the first time and is involved in a project at the moment to study the differences and the similarities uh, between Cuban, Chinese and Australian urban agriculture. I'd like, I'd, yeah, can you paint a picture of what, I mean, this has obviously been a successful model of urban agriculture. It's not just sort of a little community garden tucked away under a power line, it's everywhere. Paint a picture of what that looks like and perhaps upon that, what the day-to-day interactions of people around that is as well. Sure. Well, I mean, there is everything from backyard plots and balconies and really small stuff through to pretty big operations in the peri-urban areas especially Mm. as you find in melbourne as you find in many cities around the world it's the peri-urban areas that are providing much of the fresh food for the city the challenge many cities face is that as the city expands right what's going to happen with those areas what's Mm. you know as they become replaced by apartment buildings and, and infrastructure. And asphalt and basketball courts. <clears throat> exactly. Mm. Yep. So that is the case in Cuba as well. They have peri-urban land, which uh, you know is, is much larger scale in terms of its productivity. So you have a bit of everything. Schoolyard uh, plots are pretty big because mm. it's, this is seen as an educational tool. And this is one of the things that the, you know, the Department of Foreign Affairs here in Canberra, through its Council on Australia-Latin American Relations, this is why they gave us the funding, because they thought that that element of education is a really critical part um, that maybe we can learn something from Cuba. And also, you know... So if I look stunned, you're saying, hang on, that's a proactive approach <laughs> coming out of Canberra. <laughs> Yes, so yeah, I mean, there are... When are, are they going to follow oh. the healthcare? Jeez, I could need to go and sit down. <laughs> it's, yeah. you know, I think it's a... Well, Canberra, <laughs> I'm about to say something paradoxical, but Canberra's a diverse place, right? <laughs> Don't lie. <laughs> no, seriously, I, I, what I find is that, you know, within any given organisation, maybe not any, but certainly foreign affairs and a group like uh, the Council on Australia-Latin America Relations, you've got people really interested in artistic collaboration, for example. Mm. So in this latest funding round, I think there are three projects funded to do arts, music, dance collaborations mm. between Australia and Latin America. You've got this one on urban agriculture that I'm doing. Mm. You know, so, I, you know, I've, I've uh, spent a bit of time there over the past few months and been pleasantly uh, impressed by that. So if, if Canberra is looking to, or if our government's looking to gain inspiration, I mean, what, what sort of, what, what might East Brunswick look like, for example, if it goes under the the Cuban um, urban agriculture model? Yeah, I mean, my the area that I work on is largely about policies, right? What mm. kinds of policies can bring about situations that are going to get people eating more healthy 
fresh diets. Mm. Uh, you know, in, in the case of Melbourne, for example, 2012 was the release of the food city policy where some horrible statistics came out. 95% of Melburnians don't eat enough vegetables. 46% don't eat enough fruit. Now, compare that with Cuba, where the, the government there has just recently said they want to increase daily fresh food consumption to 460 grams per person per day. Now, that's quite a lot. That's, that's quite yeah. a lot. So if we were to go down that path, we would be eating a lot more fresh food. Mm, so, mm. you know, there seems to be a, a recognition among the Melbourne City Council, right, that something can be done and should be done to increase healthier diets. And, I mean, in the end, there's an economic argument, too, because you keep people healthier burden on the, on the public health system. Right. So there is an economic argument there, too. Mm. Um, and this, I think, is a good time to be looking at lessons that Melbourne can mm. can learn. And maybe also in some areas, um, you know, some things that we can teach. Mm. Well, to follow up what you're saying there with the economic uh, response of Cuba, you know, what's the, I mean, is what's how regulated is urban agriculture? I mean, what's sort of the market model? Uh, is it very centralised? Is it very decentralised? How much of it is monetary? How much of it is just day to day? I'll do this guy a favour because I'm going to get some tucker through. Yeah, that's that's come a, back through the loop. It's a good question. I mean, it's it's something that's changed a lot over the past 15 years. What you now have is a move towards decentralisation in general in Cuba, so that the government wants people to become more self-sufficient. You know, to again reduce the burden on the on the state budget mm. to look after people. Mm. So people are encouraged to to do private initiative. Um, you know, across a range of areas. And farming is one of the areas that's becoming more and more um, uh, decentralized in the sense that people can manage their own budgets, choose what they want to grow. The, even price setting mm. is now becoming, you know, a part of the normal situation. But in the area of urban agriculture, something I find really interesting is that the, uh, the Ministry of Agriculture has a branch of de dedicated to urban agriculture, Right. So at the highest level, there is a recognition that urban agriculture should be part of the way people produce their food. And this is really ahead of the game if you look internationally and a comparable thing in natural medicine, because if you see food as medicine, yep. it's no surprise then the Cuban health system mm. has a dedicated section, department dedicated to natural medicine. Mm. So when you go to the doctor in Cuba, if they prescribe something, but they don't have the you know, the medicine, mm. very often the doctor will say, well, go and see what they call the yerbero, yeah. the natural medicine doctor. Mm. This comes back to where we began our talk, yeah. to African traditions in Cuba, because in African religious beliefs, the natural medicine, the natural healing is really advanced. Mm. I but had, it, um, oh, you go. I was just going to say, if it goes back to the African tradition, the agriculture, isn't that from a long time ago and now the population's headed towards 9 billion? Like, would it have been easier back then to feed everyone with those methods? Like, is it going to be able to? 9 billion, you mean sort of thinking globally? Yeah, if everybody did adopt like a Cuba model, ah. would it work? Um, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it would work. Uh, I, I think, you know, everyone recognises we need, you know, uh, strategies that are going to be less polluting for the environment yep. and certainly urban agriculture is more productive in that sense and less if you go with organics then you don't have the chemical inputs so uh, the environmental story is a good one but you know every a lot of people who live in cities are pretty busy people 
They're yeah. not going to personally take time to go and do this. But then, you know, you've got to think creatively. What do we do with people who are in, in our societies, people who are 70 years old plus, right? In, in, our, in Melbourne and in many Western societies, those people end up being pretty isolated. Now, why, why aren't they doing what they do in Cuba, which is interact out there in society mm. and, um, and being involved in things like urban agriculture? Is There's that no the reason. same in China as well? Yeah, in China, it's, it's, you know, they also are focusing lately really on the peri-urban areas of Beijing, for example. Yeah. Um, there are issues there with air pollution um, because the air pollution does get into the crops. Um, but they, uh, there's a really fast-growing organics movement in Beijing because people are worried about the safety of their food. So, again, this is a good time, I think, to be looking at lessons that big cities around the world can share with each other. Beijing is definitely one of them. Yeah. If, if I can throw in, I think, you know, the fascinating thing about Cuba and the, the, what they retrospectively or at the time called the special period and that lot almost complete loss of fossil fuel energies or at least by two-thirds you know which is catastrophic you know, imagine that here like it'd be complete societal collapse if that happened essentially overnight they managed to get through it with some mal- some temporary malnutrition but no starvation meanwhile in north korea hundreds of thousands we don't really know possibly millions of people died at the same time and so i think if anywhere in the world like this transition to um, high intensity, small scale, but high productivity agriculture has been tested in difficult conditions. It'd have to be Cuba. Now, Adrian, you are also involved in um, projects in Australia, inc- including the Dandenong Dandy Growing Food uh, in Parks project with um, Professor Chris Williams from Burnley of the University of Melbourne. Uh, and is, is there anything that you're seeing already that you've learned from your experience in Cuba or other places that is of yeah, That's and look, I, I've learned a lot in Dandenong, to be honest. That's, yeah. you know, a very multicultural place. And the way that uh, Chris, has, Chris Williams has been conducting that project is really impressive. He's working with the local council there with the public park, Dandenong Public Park, to look at replacing some of the ornamental plants with other ornamentals that happen to be edible. Yeah. Right. So sweet potatoes is his his kind of thing that he, <laughs> he goes around sweet promoting. So if you go to the Dandenong Park at any point, uh, you know, have a look and you'll see in the park that they are actually growing edibles. Mm. That's that's one thing. But how are they able to do that? Well, Chris has worked with them to encourage and succeeded in getting the local council there to actually employ trained horticulturalists. That's yeah. a key thing to yeah. have the capacity. So people aren't just doing this out of their volunteer time. Mm. You have trained council workers who who work who know about how to do urban farming. Yeah. And that's something again from Cuba that I think we could do more broadly here. Mm. It is interesting as you say that the, the Cuban government created an employment model for people to undertake urban agriculture because I mean you hear it all the time a volunteer group got together and they put a community garden together and over time this people fell away and now you've got this abandoned block. I mean it that, that's, I think that's going to have to be a massive shift, isn't it, for urban agriculture to succeed? Is that actually going to have to be a valued contribution to a monetary economy as well as, you know, a non-monetary economy? Yeah, look, I think this is where the kind of global multilateral stuff can play a role because if you can show that what you're doing relates to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, for example, yep. then um, you're more likely to get funding from your own government yep. to do things because your government can then put its hand up and say we are um, following and adhering to the SDGs. Indeed. Right? So 
tying into the from the local right up to the kind of multilateral global stuff. And I think that's where DFAT and COALA are also, uh, you know, have a, been able to bring local and global together pretty well. These awesome. are the people um, funding your research, which we <laughs> well, yeah. very much look forward to. Uh, hearing more about when when's it when will you have published stuff from your trips through back to Cuba and you know uh, that university people hate that question come on <laughs> when, when will you have published you sound like my boss uh, no no but it's a good question they, yeah. the team will come here in uh, from Cuba in February we'll go there I think in June mm-hmm. and then based on that exchange of experiences we're going to write something together yeah, yeah. Awesome. and maybe if there's a chance we'll come back and talk about it here that'd be fantastic we would love that thank you very much Adrian for coming in this evening oh, my pleasure Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You're listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3 Triple R. We've got a special guest in the studio. I recently had the pleasure of meeting a nice young Welsh man by the name of Rue who was telling me about a project that he wanted to start and it sounded quite good. So I thought maybe they might want to launch it tonight on the show. So Rue, welcome. Thank you very much. And you've brought someone with you here? Yeah, it's um, my uh, friend and colleague, uh, Connor O'Hanlon. Yep. Accomplice, uh, yeah. As yeah. seen on Vikings? As seen on Vikings. <laughs> 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 and heard on Triple R, there we go. And what is your project? Uh, it's called um, Favours. Uh, it's pretty simplistic. It's basically, I've got, um, I'm going to be taking Fridays off work, uh, and essentially, I'll be offering out my time to do favours for people as long as it's legal not detrimental to my health and as long as people aren't taking a piss then uh, you know I'll give them some time of my day and try and help them out so, um, you sounds help- a bit ambiguous to find legal <laughs> <laughs> well you know like yeah. if I wanted you to help set up some grow lights that's some gr- well you know no I don't know I guess I'm kind of from a selfish perspective. I'm doing it to gain, to get some experience, you know. Yeah, just why are you doing it? Uh, what do you get? Because you don't get any money. I don't get any money, but I guess I get to um, share an experience with some people that I might not have met under other circumstances. Yep. And I think also it's my sort of longer term ambition for the project is that more and more people can sign up to this project and then maybe people who wouldn't interact normally on a day-to-day basis can interact in a a wholly positive uh, situation yeah Uh, so whether you know people enjoy doing nice things for people Um, (coughs) do you think uh, it's a dying art I'm not sure. I actually think there's a there's kind of a weird sort of cut-off point between uh, almost town and, and country where I think maybe people in cities are in a bit more of a rush and a bit more cash money orientated uh, and yeah, they can lose a bit of a human element of um, just giving someone the time of day. Yep. You know, because it makes, you know, it's, it just makes a difference sometimes. When you, when you see that you could make someone's life just a little bit easier just by doing one really simple thing. Like what? Give me an example. Just help someone carry their shopping home. Oh, they can ring up and ask that. Oh, uh, well, you know, we, you know, yeah, if they could do. We encourage them to, actually, so, you know, the phones are open. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there's no, you know, whatever. Yeah. You know, if you want an opinion on what bikini you should wear on holiday. Oh, yeah, that right. sounds like a hard favour for you. Yeah, 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 probably, yeah, probably... <laughs> 
and then, probably wishful thinking. Um, have you thought through the worst case scenarios? Like, could something go terribly awry with this thing? Yeah, I guess it could. I guess someone could ask me to wear the bikini. Yeah. <laughs> and then, <laughs> then they could make their mind up on a. Make a bigger car that doesn't suit your complexion. You yeah, know? look, it's, 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 pretty, it's, pretty, it's pretty open to uh, abuse. Yeah. Um, but I'm just hoping uh, that, you know, overall it'll be a, a positive uh, experience. Yeah. Um, what do yeah. you think about this? You've just written a book about stuff like this. Oh, I, do, I do think what it's like, say you're an isolated human being in the city and, like, say, you know, you don't know how to record something on your VCR, okay, that's an example from 1993, <laughs> but if, if you had to pay somebody to do that, like, it's completely unaffordable. Yeah, you just unfeasible. can't afford it. Yeah. So if you don't have that kind of social network to help with all those little things, life is incredibly hard. Yeah. So I think you guys could be bringing some... Um, yeah, ex- exactly, like even something like moving a fridge. Yeah. You know I mean, like if you live on your own and you don't know anybody in the area, that yeah, can exactly. become, like, a stressful event. Yeah. I just, I, if another part of it, I, you know, stress is, I think, is negative, mm. and if I, if if I can just take a little bit of that away from someone's sort of day, then yeah, that's kind of what I'm hoping to achieve. Mm. Now, I think it's awesome. I think it's a great idea. I'll just think back. I, I spent a few months on. Um, well, I don't want to call it Centrelink allowance. I prefer to call it. I, was, I had a sponsorship deal with the John Howard Surf Team <laughs> about 16 <laughs> years ago, and. Um, and I used to pick up a lot of volunteer work helping the elderly in their garden. And so I was sort of able to put that down in my book. And everything. But then I'd often receive phenomenal cakes, often from old ladies who had been baking for like <laughs> yeah. 60 years, <laughs> and conversations about like little tiny dot points of history that you, they're just not published anywhere, mm-hmm. someone's personal story. Yeah. So but- it's actually a wonderful two-way street because... Especially, I suppose, especially helping the isolate, especially helping the elderly, if that was something that came about. Yeah. I'd, There's a lot of lessons to be learned. I'd 100% prefer um, people who, who call in and ask for us to do a favour if they genuinely need help. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, I, d- I don't just want it to be someone who's just, you know, who's fully able mm. to do what I can do, and I just, just you know, yeah. just doing it as a bit Sp- of Speaking labor. of, like, you know, Bushy's talking about reciprocity. Mm-hmm. Will, will there be any point, you know, kind of uh, a la The Godfather, where you call the favours back in? Uh, no, not really. I guess, look, I, I, I think when I first thought of, about it, I was sort of thinking that people can give whatever they want. Um, you know, they can give me a sandwich or a, a cake would be pretty sweet. Um, but no, because I'm getting something out of it yeah. anyway. Hey, we are going to take your very first clients, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If, I reckon if we they should. actually call in. We've got to do. Hey, if you're listening right now, call up on 93881827. And if you have got a favour, that is. Actually, I've just got to read this out. It's got to be legal. It's not going to harm the boys. And it's um, not going to be taking the piss. It also shouldn't be any longer than one hour so that these guys can get around and help others. And you only get one favour per household um, per or, per, or per week. Yeah. So if you've got a favour that you need doing, I'm going to test that there's people listening to this show. Um, why don't you call in 93881027 light up switchboard <laughs> before okay. we go to the track proper mm, before we go to the track proper because you can call up during the track yeah mm. yeah before we go to the track I think that Rue and Connor have perhaps got a jingle planned yeah, well we've been, we've, yeah. been, we've been playing around with a few ideas yeah um, 
we thought it could be a little bit of a thing actually but anytime we ever come on to the show maybe we'll um i think anytime you ever enter anybody's house anybody, or give them a, <laughs> any, any, give, any do a premises favor. we just, roll just out jingles. a jingle yeah, yeah. like soundtracks to jing- soundtracks to favors you value know? add yeah. guys so um yeah. it's going to happen in the studio now we're going adam and i are going to move and the jingle team are going to move in and uh <coughs> cool Chase. What's your favorite? Tell me what's your favorite? What's your favorite? Tell me what's your favorite? What's your favorite? Tell me what's your favorite? Slicker than your average. What's your favorite? Tell me what's your favorite? You may have a few extra voices there. Who else we got in the studio? Hey, we've Tim, oh, Tim. Isaac, Isaac, Geordie, nice work, boys. Also known yeah. as the Favour Squad. <laughs> oh, Favour Squad. Hey, Favour Squad, we've got someone on hold now who's on oh, air. Hello. Wow. Hello, are you Hi. there? Yep, I'm here. Okay, you are the first Favour, uh, the first Favour customer. What's your Favour? Uh, well, I'm not 100% sure what you're offering, but I wanted um, Grubby to teach me how to turn my poo into compost. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. That is very interesting. That's and it's something that Connor actually specializes in. You do that? Well, I think... Well, I was no. a, actually, Grubby She threw it to I, me, but, like, I, I'm really happy to handball this one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how, how noble of you, um, mi- Mr. Grubby. Well... Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know how. I, 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 I lack the qualifications um, of, of, of Mr. Grubb, but I. I well, there's um, not a lot I of do, formal I qualifications. Enthu- I do have the in enthusiasm the and, a, and a little little experience, um, but but uh, you know, there's it, there, there's not too much to it. I mean, for, for me, it seems like a brilliant idea. We we we, we expend all these resources, sort of. Uh, you know, we plunder one ecosystem to pull, you know, pulling pulling fresh water out so, just so we can shit in it and ruin it and then ru- ruin another ecosystem on the way out. So, um... All right, I think, we, I I think Connor, no you sound like you're a taker. You, uh, yeah, that's caller, it. We can I think, do that. We can do that. I think the Let's hook t- has been bitten. Have we still got that caller? Um, I don't suppose you've got a favourite. So, uh, obviously, like, I do encourage callers to ring up each week and ask Adam for help with their poo. <laughs> um, but what about the favours squad? Because they're in here and they've got all sorts of skills and stuff but don't necessarily want to go down uh, the, the human newer oh, path. I think Connor was keen. I, yeah, I, I, I was say, totally I would say that's a no. I would put that in the yes column. Yeah, that was yeah. in the yes put column. In, in the yes column. <laughs> so, but, but, yeah, really what? Um, turned on and got half the segment, so I'm not sure what's on offer. If it's not uh, ah okay okay I guess I guess in in a nutshell we're offering uh, an, an hour of our time to come and help you do whatever you you, you want essentially as long as it's legal a, a, a favour and doesn't you know affect our health and it, detrimentally <laughs> yeah you know wow. we're, um, such as we we have a degree of olfactory resilience you know <laughs> um, so we yeah. could probably yeah, we're old school yeah <laughs> it's awesome that's so generous. Yeah. It is, yeah. Every so, Friday. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia. You guys th- took some calls during the break for some favours? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I took um, a call from a lady called Jane. She's a single mum and her boys have done a pretty decent job of uh, wrecking some of the property, so... <laughs> <laughs> we're going to go in and take a look and see what we can do on Friday. Like um, kind of carpentry types. 
level stuff, or just you're just going to be sweeping? I think it's paint. I think it's painting. Okay, I'm painting. Yeah. Oh, good on you guys. Good yeah. stuff. Yeah. And how could people contact the Favors crew if they want a favor? Um, so there's a Facebook page, uh, and so it's um, it's called Favors, and the um, the old computer box is not my forte. Uh, so when I was <laughs> we'll, knocking, when I was knocking, we'll put this, a link up to it. When I was it. knocking this page up last night, <laughs> I was I was I was scratching my head quite a lot. Um, but it made me put. So I've got it's called Favors, and I think if you go on Facebook and you look at at Favors for a neighbor. Favour for a neighbour. Yeah, then you'll... And we're going with the UK spelling on that one, or the uh, Australian... The real, the real spelling. The proper spelling. (laughs) The real spelling? Yeah, Yeah, proper spelling. Awesome. Tonight we've had Adrian Hearn talking about urban agriculture. We've had the amazing Favours crew coming in to offer favours. Jed's hit the buttons in the correct sequence. Colsey's just legendary. Uh, Adam, there's some stuff next week happening. As always. There's something. Uh, it's going to be quite a good one, though, I reckon. Yeah. Uh, as it was tonight, we're going to be talking to uh, Cassie Latham, who's uh, an Indigenous bush tucker. Um, she she lives uh, almost very largely off bush tucker, so real deal. Like, awesome. It's going to be fascinating. Brilliant stuff. Bushy's my name. We will see you next Tuesday, but until then, have all the fun. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.